gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe, is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Rachel Miller, and... Tonight, or today, whenever you're listening, we have the hosts of the Glory Cloud podcast with us, Todd Bordeaux and Chris Cahey, and we're going to be talking about theonomy, and I know we've had both Todd and Chris on before, but I would really like each of you to share just a little bit about yourselves and your backgrounds. Todd, why don't you start? Okay, for those who don't know me from the other podcast, I Started out as a youth minister and for many years in the evangelical church and um, attended Westminster Seminary in California in the 90s. And after that, I became a church planter for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. I planted uh, three churches. Obviously, when I say I planted with a lot of help, but um, then I became the pastor of Cornerstone OPC here in Houston. So my MDiv is from Westminster, and then my Doctorate of Ministry is from Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. I'm Chris Cahey. Um, I also went to Westminster Seminary, California, a little bit after Todd. Um, we had some some friends in common that were still there when I was there. And shortly after graduating, um, due to the influence of Meredith Klein, um, who Todd and I talk about all the time on the Glory Cloud podcast. I wrote uh, The Tale of Two Atoms. Um, it started out as a, um, a refutation of Norman Shepard, but I turned it into mostly a positive presentation of uh, Klein's biblical theology and his covenant theology. Um, and then I went on to do a PhD at Trinity College Dublin on antinomianism and the Mosaic law. But uh, right now I am hosting the Glory Cloud podcast with Todd. And um, I just want to mention that we will link 
uh, your book in the episode notes. If anyone's interested, and we highly recommend it. Well, as I was mentioning, um, as we were discussing before we started recording, uh, I don't know a whole lot about like the history of theonomy and um, all of what's in, what encom- theonomy encompasses. So I was wondering, Chris, maybe could you talk a little bit about the history of theonomy, you know, where it came from, how it's evolved, you know, et cetera. What are the types? Sure. Well, I think it would be helpful to start out by uh, pointing out that in a very technical way, theonomy is very, very new. And I think we could trace its beginning to 1959 when R.J. Rushduni wrote, By What Standard? An Analysis of the Philosophy of Cornelius Van Til. Um, The word theonomy itself had really been used for the first time in conservative reform circles the year before, in 1958, when Van Til wrote a syllabus for one of his courses called Christian Theistic Ethics. Um, In that syllabus, he said, and I'm quoting here, there is no alternative but that of theonomy and autonomy. Uh, And that's the end of the quote. Now, What Van Til meant by that is that we can either submit our thinking to God's revelation or we can continue on in our rebellion against God and reason as if God's revelation were not true. And uh, apparently, the theological liberal named Paul Tillich had used the phrase theonomous, uh, ending O-U-S, theonomous ethics before Van Til did, but especially since Tillich was an existentialist, It's not immediately clear what he meant by theonomous ethics, Uh, but it is an interesting question whether Van Til maybe got the idea for the word theonomy from Tillich. But you can already see how Van Til is right at the heart of this new theological system. In fact, I would go so far as to say that without Van Til's presuppositional apologetics, I don't think theonomy could survive. Now, I, I don't mean to lay the blame for theonomy at Van Til's feet. But when Van Til talks about the antithesis, um, the idea that we either know things by thinking God's thoughts after him or by rebelliously reasoning as if we were the standard of truth in ourselves, when Van Til talks about that kind of antithesis, the theonomists really latch on to that, and they talk about pressing the antithesis. And, and we can talk more about that if you want to. It is interesting that Almost all the major theonomic thinkers and writers were students of Van Til's at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. You had R.J. Rushduni and then Gary North in the 1950s and 1960s, but it was really Greg Bonson in the 1970s who really popularized theonomy. In 1977, uh, Bonson published Theonomy in Christian Ethics, and in that book, he defines theonomy as the idea that all civil governments of all times and all places ought to enforce the Mosaic law in exhaustive detail. Now, Bonson was willing to make an exception about the ceremonial laws, about uh, sacrifices because of Acts 10, where God tells Peter in a vision that he can now eat foods that were formerly considered unclean in the Mosaic covenant. But Bonson thought that every single law in the Mosaic covenant that was not a ceremonial law ought to be enforced by every civil government of all times and all places. So, I mean, that's theonomy in a nutshell. But I do want to talk for just a minute about what we call the the threefold distinction in the law. And that threefold distinction is between the moral law, 
the civil or judicial law and the ceremonial law. And this distinction is important because while there have been other problematic views in church history about the law and how it applies to civil governments after Old Covenant Israel, theonomy is unique in that it consciously and systematically calls for civil governments today to be enforcing the civil law or the judicial law of the Mosaic Covenant. And the civil laws are the majority of the laws in the Mosaic Covenant. The moral law is really summarized in the Ten Commandments, and the ceremonial laws govern the priests and the sacrificial system. So everything else is considered civil law. So this would be like the some of the discussions I think I've seen online about whether or not we should still have like stoning for adultery or is that? Exactly. So um, that's an example of um, someone saying that not only should we, should the civil government be enforcing the, uh, the Mosaic law, but that it should be enforcing it in exactly the same with the exact same punishment that God prescribed in the Mosaic law. It's not enough to, um, you know, put someone in the electric chair or use lethal injection. They actually want the stoning. Wow. Um, I think, I think the passage about disobedient children would be very scary. Uh, exactly. To, to think about. One of the things that I see when you see discussions on theonomy is on some of the different types uh, where one theonomist will say something and another theonomist will say, oh, well, I don't believe that. So is there a lot of differences between theonomists in how they're viewing this? I have only been on the receiving end of theonomy. I've never subscribed to it myself um, but I get the sense that there are different schools in terms of, you know, someone follows Bonson, someone else follows maybe Gary DeMar or um, some other thinkers, but they, they do tend to have some nuances. Uh, Todd, do you have um, maybe something more specific to contribute on that? Yeah. I mean, sometimes there's a distinction of theonomy and then simply being a sort of a theocrat in the sense that, the law in general, the moral law, and some theonomists will say it's only the moral law that should be enforced, not the civil And so they would see laws against um, working on Sundays because it's part of the moral law in their mind, or laws against, we would, we would punish, you know, people who fornicate outside of marriage because it's a breaking of the seventh commandment. So you have some who would say, I'm only a theonomist in the sense of the Ten Commandments. Others would say, no, the judicial law is not just given to Old Testament Israel, but is a standard, an ideal for all nations. And so you have disagreements among them with the same general presupposition that the Bible gives us the laws by which the state is to govern. That's helpful. You know, I, just one, one more follow-up because this occurred to me. I don't know if you've seen some of the discussions online. I saw some discussions on Twitter. I want to say it was a couple months ago where there's some of these theonomists saying, oh, we are, we are all theonomists because it means God's law and we should all love God's law, you know, this sort of thing. And some of the attacks on people that were disagreeing with theonomy I don't know if either of you had seen some of those things going around social media. Yeah, I ended up 
uh, jumping into one of those and creating a bit of a storm with the person who made that um, unfortunate claim. I mean, yes, the if you understand the etymology of the word, it does mean God's law, but we can't pretend that nothing happened after Van Til said, you know, that quote that I mentioned earlier, along come Van Til's students who make a complete system out of it, and there's no going back now. So, Todd, why should we be worried about theonomy? And let me say, in, in my, and I don't know if this is the case or it's just in my own life, but I remember when I was newly reformed in the 90s, there was, um, you know, I knew a lot of theonomists and um, it seemed to die down some and maybe there's a revival of it now. I don't know. And just my own perception. But should we be concerned about it and why should we be concerned about it? Well, this is going to be a rather long answer, so I'll probably stop and split it into two. But when dealing with theonomy and why to be worried about it, we have to consider the narrow question and then the broader question or the broader problem. The narrow question is more a theory of governance. And so Christians get together and they say, if we were in charge or if Christians were in charge of the government, what should they do? Uh, what laws should they enforce and where would they find that standard? So it's more a question of what ideally should be the law of the land. Um, how should we vote? Um, if, if one of us becomes a president or uh, a magistrate, um, what, what laws should we implement from the Bible and how? Now, in the narrow sense, that's a somewhat innocuous question because I think we all know that's not going to happen. So President Trump isn't calling the church asking for what mosaic laws he needs to enforce. And no one's listening to the church how to govern. You know, the state is not listening to the church. We are not ruling. So it, it tends to be more of a theory for us and, and even more as time goes on. And so, you know, Christians can sit around asking the question and asking, well, you know, if we were making laws, what would we do about marijuana legalization or whatever? Do what, what part of the Bible do we go to? Is it even proper? So in that sense, there's not much to worry about. Theonomists aren't going to take over. In the bigger picture of how many people in the world, there's probably eight theonomists um, compared. So it's on the level of simply the narrow question of the theory Brothers can disagree. Certainly in my past, um, I'm about as far as a theonomist. To, well, maybe Chris is a little more than me, but <laughs> I'm about as on the other side as can be. And yet there are some theonomists that were friends of mine and, and they were in ministry longer and I would go to them for pastoral counsel. They seem to keep it on the level of theory. Their view was different, but it didn't affect uh, the way we saw the basic things. Now, the problem, though, is not the theory. It's the ideology that comes with theonomy. And the ideology is very damaging. It brings division and legalism. And uh, An example I could give is when someone asks me my view of homeschooling, I tend to say it depends what you mean. Do you mean homeschooling as a theory of education or homeschooling ideology? 
as a theory of education, it's fine. It's as good as any other. Every parent can do what educate the way they think is best. And you know, in our church, we have all parents that do all different types of education, and that's fine. But often homeschooling comes with a religious ideology, which says anyone who doesn't do this and puts their children in public schools is in sin, or they believe that by homeschooling, they can control the spiritual life of their children, that things will turn out right for them. It often brings all kinds of division in the church of who does it, quote unquote, God's way. And so there's a homeschool theory, which is fine. And we always support that. Parents are free. Then there's a homeschool ideology, which can be very damaging. I think we all seen the difference. And the same is true for theonomy. So let me stop there because I want to give about four or five examples of how the ideology is so damaging to the church. But so here is the problem that many, if not most of those who adopt theonomy, adopt also the ideology surrounding theonomy. And one of them that is very destructive to the church is to suggest that the Lord has given the church two mandates in our relationship to the lost instead of one mandate. That's very important. In the Bible, the church has one mandate with, with regard to the lost, and that is evangelism. It is to present the gospel to them, to love them with Christ's love, and, and to see them converted to Christ. We work and pray unto that end. That's our mandate. Theonomy ideology suggests there are two mandates given to the church, evangelism and political or cultural transformation. The, the goal to establish the law of God in the land. And so now we are, in this view, we have two mandates instead of one. And one of the ways they do that is they tweak certain verses that traditionally have been understood as the one mandate. For example, the Great Commission in Matthew 28. They, the theonomists tend to take disciple the nations as proving there's a second mandate, not simply to preach the gospel to them, but disciple or teach the nations how to implement God's law for a godly society. But clearly in Matthew 28, to disciple the nations is simply shorthand for disciple the people of the nations who you reach with the gospel. When we get to the book of Revelation and all the tribes of the earth are before God, all the nations themselves are not before the Lord, but the redeemed out of each nation. And when it says baptize first, we obviously cannot baptize nations. We baptize individuals. So what traditionally was seen as the one mandate for the church to preach the gospel, and then when they're saved, to baptize them and teach them how to serve the Lord Jesus, has become a two-mandate view that the church is not only to do evangelism, but they are to transform the land and to establish God's law. Now, when you have two mandates instead of one, what's eventually going to happen? One of them will be minimized. You will only have passion. Eventually, the other will be crowded out. And unfortunately, that's what tends to happen in theonomy circles. I mean, if you consider a theonomy conference, you know what's going to happen. It's going to be about culture. 
about politics, how to influence culture and politics. When's the last time you've seen a theonomy conference on how to share the gospel? Right. And so you see what happens, right? When, yes. when you, okay. <laughs> and you know what? I, as you're talking, I can actually think of specific examples of what you're talking about. Right. And so, you know, the criticism is, criticism is often, if you tell the church there's only one mandate, then they won't care about the things of society in this world. But of course we care about things as good neighbors. And even though we understand those things in common grace are temporary, but the church as an institution is given one mandate. And I often say to people, a million people every week in this world die. A million people a week die and enter a Christless eternity. Please explain to me what social or political issue the church needs to be passionate about. We don't have the time, resources for the church to be focused on trying to change society according to God's law. It's not even the mandate given to the church. Certainly, you don't see the apostles doing that, talking about that. They are preaching the gospel to individuals and then strengthening churches. So the one mandate to the two mandate idea, which is an ideology of theonomy, has done a lot of damage to the purpose of the church and what we should be focused on. And often it, it the second mandate ends up working against the first one. Because uh, is our desire to establish laws where non-Christians are killed because they worship other gods? That's how it was in the Old Covenant. Or is our goal to reach them for Christ? Um, so that's, that's one of the um, problems and a serious problem of the ideology. That's only the first one. So you may want to go back to Chris. I had a quick question. Um, you know, as you're describing this, I know that a lot of what I've seen from theonomy tends to be what I would consider uh, right or center right politics. But I've seen similar arguments made about changing the culture and, and such and our, our role as Christians from, you know, more progressive or left leaning type Christians as well. Would they still consider themselves theonomists or is that something totally different now? The left would not use the term, but we would argue that they are using the same hermeneutic. Okay, that helps. Thank you. In other words, they are wrongly using the Bible to determine what laws, you know, the liberals tend to use, let's say, the Sermon on the Mount for nations, mm -hmm. when theonomists tend to use the Old Testament law for nations. Same problematic hermeneutic, but different application. I know that... Um, Todd and Chris, that y'all talk a lot about um, Klein and how to apply what Klein has written to various situations on, on your podcast. Um, so, Chris, could you talk a little bit about how uh, Meredith Klein refutes theonomy? Sure. Um, there are lots of ways that Meredith Klein refutes theonomy, but I think that one of the most important ways is by identifying a covenant based on the principle of common grace. 
the idea of common grace is that even though Adam and Eve deserved death instantly when they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God gave them and all of humanity really a stay of execution by promising that children would continue to be born, even though it would be through excruciating pain, uh, that people would continue to get married, even though marriages would be fraught with all kinds of problems, uh, that people would continue to work and have food to eat, even though that work would be difficult and frustrating. Uh, In other words, at the fall, God was giving human beings blessings that they didn't deserve and which they had actually forfeited by their disobedience, which we can identify that as the principle of grace, but it's not saving grace. It's not a grace that results in eternal life in heaven. It's a grace that is concerned only with life in this world. And so we call it common grace because both believers and unbelievers share this grace in common. Saving grace belongs only to believers and their children. So Klein says that this covenant of common grace began at the fall and will continue until Christ returns, but all of the benefits of the covenant of common grace will end at that point when Christ returns. Plus, Klein identifies three institutions, if if we can call them that, uh, that belong to the covenant of common grace, the family, the state, and the culture. And that's important because it means that by God's own design, the family, the state, and the culture are not holy, uh, at least after the fall. That um, That doesn't mean that the family, the state, and the culture are unholy. It just means that they are non-holy. Now, why is that so important? Well, because after we first encounter the principle of common grace in Genesis 3, just a few chapters later, we have the flood. The world had become so overwhelmingly wicked that God brought about a miniature version of the final judgment with the flood that simultaneously drowned the unbelievers, and saved Noah and his family. But after the flood, when Noah and his family left the ark, God made a covenant with all of creation, not just with a holy chosen people. And in Genesis 8, 21 and 22, God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never will I Uh, Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So here's the bottom line. Even if you disagree with Klein about the family, the state, and the culture being common or non-holy, the point is that God is not going to strike down every living creature like he did in the flood, even though he acknowledges that the intention of human hearts is evil from their youth. And to try to bring about some system like theonomy that does strike people down for their wickedness is to try to get God to break his promises, his promise in uh, Genesis 8, 21 and 22, because At that point, you are trying to introduce the principle of final judgment while the earth remains. Now, that also condemns a broader idea that's related to theonomy, and that's the idea of theocracy. 
Uh, Klein has a very precise definition of theocracy, which is very important, but the way we could understand theocracy outside the Mosaic Covenant, um, I think is really helpfully defined by Lee Irons in his paper titled uh, Reformed Theocrats. And he says that uh, theocracy is a form of civil government in which A, the civil authority confesses in its official capacity commitment to a religious system of belief, B, such confession being understood as necessary to the civil power's rightful authority, and C, thus entrusting to the civil power the duty of enforcing that religious system of belief in the public realm. And that's the, the end of Lee's quote. So even the theocratic principle that we've seen in church history since Constantine would be an attempt to try to introduce that principle of final judgment against sins while the earth remains. Uh, But Klein has other arguments against theonomy as well. Uh, In broader terms, another very important argument is that the civil or judicial laws of the Mosaic Covenant were part of the typological covenant of works. So to pretend that those laws are God's inspired blueprint for all civil governments of all times and all places is to want to place all of humanity back under an intolerable covenant of works that condemns us as sinners. Um, After all, in Acts 15.10, Peter asks the Judaizers in front of the Jerusalem council, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Um, In Galatians 3.19, the language that Paul uses means that God added the Mosaic law alongside the Abrahamic covenant of grace in order to produce or Another way we could render that is to even provoke transgressions. In other words, the Mosaic Law was not a practical handbook to civil government. It was designed by God to cause Israel to sin in the uncontrollable way that sinners do sin. Um, My favorite analogy is from mixed martial arts. And um, I like to say that Israel should have realized that they were being forced to tap out to indicate that they were beaten by their own sin and that they needed a better Israel to obey God for them. So those are at least two arguments from Klein. Chris, I have a little bit of a follow-up question. I don't know if it fits exactly into what you're talking about, but it's something that I keep thinking about. Since Rachel and I have talked a lot about federal vision, and you see a lot of the people that our federal vision are also theonomous. Is there a theological reason for this? <laughs> yeah, there's, um, I mean, we don't want to commit the, the genetic fallacy, but there is some DNA, so to speak, to the connection between federal vision and theonomy. One is uh, that Norman Shepard is um, at least neck deep, probably deeper than that in the whole federal via, federal vision theology and, and the whole movement. He's been invited to speak at some of their conferences. Um, it's no accident that Greg Bonson was one of Shepard's students while he was at Westminster in Philadelphia. So Bonson was drinking from um, Shepard's well of seeing the principles of works and grace in all covenants and um, and th- that law gospel distinction shows up uh, loud and clear in the federal vision movement. 
Um, I'm not completely sure how um, someone like Doug Wilson came to be a theonomist, although I'm sure, you know, he would, he would deny that term. But when you hear his views on the law, it's, it's theonomy. And I've, I've had run-ins with pastors from the CREC and they are definitely, and they would, they would even own the term uh, theonomist. So I think last I saw Wilson owns it also actually. Okay. It just seems like he's kind of like John frame and that he likes to be a little bit slippery and um, you know, not own the term while he owns the concept, but if he owns the term, fair enough. I was going to add, though, to Chris's point that the other thing you see theonomists do with the law, and that's dangerous for Christians, is to assume that Christians are under the Deuteronomy 28 and 29 blessing and curses. Right. And so not only do they say that about nations, that God curses nations today based on the same um, legal arrangement he had with Israel. So if there's a certain amount of laws that they implement that are ungodly, then you can expect the type of judgments. Um, and then if nations change their laws, then we can expect blessings. So they bring the principle of wrongly to apply to the common grace culture. And then they attempt to read God's providence of what the nation is doing wrong based on whatever suffering is out there. We've seen all the kind these kind of things with the virus, haven't we? Yeah, I was just thinking that as you were talking and that those that I have seen, you know, I've seen things like the virus is judgment for abortion in the United States or things like that. It has been from the anonymous. So that's that's interesting. Do you mind if I finish the point about the dangers of theonomy? Oh, yeah, that would be fine. Um, one of some of the other things is when I mentioned the blessings and curses, I've read many theonomists also include that for Christians that Christians are under an arrangement that we receive blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience um, because that's what we see in Deuteronomy um, for Israel under the law. And that, of course, really ends up denying the work of Christ and taking our curse upon himself and that all our blessings come through him and him represented us. Um, to To consider our own works or lack of works as the basis for our covenantal blessings and cursings is obviously very dangerous, but it's a very common to read that. A few other matters that what that dangerous things that come with the ideology is they tend to redefine concepts in a very dangerous way. For example, the word salvation in scripture. Salvation is always used for individuals. An individual is saved. And even when it uses it more generally speaking of the world, the context obviously means the elect or people in the world, not cultures. When we start to use salvation to speak of politics, you know, I've heard theonomists say the gospel promises that politics will be redeemed, um, culture will be redeemed. See, what we end up doing is profaning the word. Because salvation always refers to being part of the new creation. And politics and culture are part of the old creation only. So as soon as we broaden these definitions, they begin to lose their meaning. Um, and that's exactly what classic liberalism always did. 
is they broadened, they didn't deny personal salvation, but they expanded upon it to include the common grace world. Then over time, what was minimized more and more was personal salvation. So we need to use our language, biblical language, very clearly. Salvation is the salvation of sinners. Redemption is the redemption of sinners. Um, if, if we speak of the world um, in any sense being cleansed or it's the new creation. It's not something the church can do by implementing some kind of law. And so the redefining of concepts becomes dangerous. And, then, and a few more, the arrogance that tends to be around theonomy because they assume, like you said, that if you don't love God's law and use it the way they suggest, you're an antinomian, you're a dispensational, you separate the Old Testament from the New and like the dispensation, you're Gnostic, you don't believe in the physical realm, that, that the physical realm can be redeemed. And so there's an error among Christians and it causes all kinds of problems in the church because they're fed this type of silliness. And in, as you said, there, there's a fear tactic. Who doesn't want to be for God's law, right? Who wants to be known as someone against God's law? So you either agree that this is how the law should be implemented or um, you're sort of vilified. And so that type of arrogance is very in the church. And anyone who's been a pastor for a while knows this. Actually, you don't even have to be a pastor, right? You've seen it. Yeah, And then there's the legalism. If the Bible establishes God's law, not only for God's people, but for every aspect of society, then pastors become experts on everything. And that's a recipe for control and abuse. So now pastors get to instruct you how to vote on every issue, how to school your kids. They become experts in economics because they think the Bible answers um, what kind of economy we should have, that that's the purpose. They become ex experts in criminology because they're trying to use the Old Testament um, criminology as some sort of guide on what should be today. And so what happens is there's a lack of freedom for Christians. They have to follow these rabbi-type leaders who are self-proclaimed experts on everything because they're misusing the Bible. There's no rest with this. Everybody's always worried. Am I taking every square inch correctly with this movie? Um, everything I do, is there a Bible verse that backs this up that I'm doing this properly? I want God's blessing. I want to do it according to the law. And so you don't find people resting in Christ as much. There's a lot of suspicion when people have different views, when everything becomes a matter of God's law. And it does damage people's assurance that way. And then the final thing you see a lot is they tend to, in the ideology, take on the role of the accuser of the brethren. Because when they see Christians not affecting their culture, they blame the church. Because they assume this is a mandate given to the church. And if it hasn't been done, the church is guilty. They are weak. And so then they are criticized um, for being ineffectual and their gospel doesn't work and et cetera, et cetera. 
And and that's how Satan, that's one of Satan's tasks to say to the church, um, you're useless and you don't affect anything. You're weak. But we are weak. That's the nature of the cross is we look weak to the world. I mean, did Christ change the politics of Israel? No. And so in three years, the Son of God himself was in Israel, and he did not affect the politics or culture of Israel. I mean, actually it got worse because of his presence. Are the Chinese guilty of not having a robust gospel because they continue to live under communist oppression? Why haven't they changed their culture? There's, there are hundreds of millions of professing Christians. What about the Jews in Babylon? How did that change Babylon? <laughs> and so you see what happens. The fruit of theonomy, the ideology, does a lot of damage and has to the church. Let me ask for your thoughts on that. Let, maybe what you've seen. Um, I can say that certainly in the, the, the recent discussions that we've had in some of our groups and online and, and what we're seeing with the women in our groups talking, is there is a lot of, of, um, of fear, a lot of, um, of guilt. Are we doing it the right way? Have we gotten everything correct? You know, what if we don't? And, you know, but, and certainly Colleen and I have, have both been, uh, charged with being antinomians for our, our beliefs about the law and the, and the appropriate uses. So, yeah, it's, you're right about it. There's no rest in this. Yeah, I was actually sharing with Chris before we recorded and before Rachel and Todd came that um, somebody that is a theonomist, Federal Vision person, was saying in a group that, that I, <laughs> me, Colleen, um, is an antinomian that denies the third use of the law. And I'm thinking, how could you listen to our podcast and think that? <laughs> exactly. I was thinking as you were talking about um, a theonomist that uh, got himself into, I, I think someone invited him into the Meredith Klein Facebook group and he wanted to talk to me. So we spent three or four hours of my life that I will never get back on Skype. Um, and he told me that a lot of the points that you just made about Jesus not um, changing, uh, you know, the, the Roman government or anything like that, that those are all arguments from silence. Just because we don't read about it in the Bible doesn't mean that um, those efforts weren't underway. Interesting. Todd, one of the things when we talk about theonomy, and I know a lot of people have seen that, they'll hear by what standard. And I think even there might even be, people might not even understand what the argument that is being made from the theonomist because you had recently the founders synodoc was called by what standard. And I think some people are using it in different ways. So maybe you can explain what the, by what standard argument is and what the argument against it is. So the, by what standard argument is simply a false dichotomy. Chris said the old Testament law to Israel is redemptive historical. It's covered which it comes on the heels of a covenant relationship. And so the law was never given to the other nations. The law was given to Israel. And so Canaan is a type of heaven that's very clear. And the Israelites in the Old Testament are a type of the spiritual seed, as Paul explains. 
in Galatians 3 and Romans 9. And so it's a misuse of the law, given that the old covenant um, nation of Israel prefigured the church in heaven. And so we cannot simply divorce the law from its covenantal context and then use it in a, in a, in a way that it would never was intended to be used. For example, the people, um, you know, the nations weren't ever um, accused of violating the civil laws of Israel or the ceremonial laws of Israel when the prophets spoke to the nations. They were always the, um, what we would call moral law or natural law. What they already knew in their consciences were wrong. And so they were even never held to that standard. And, and if you look at the New Testament, every time an Old Testament law is cited, and I mean every time, it's always fulfilled in the covenant people. It's never fulfilled outside in the world. And so it's an illegitimate question because it's a misuse of the law. I mean, I could ask the, the theonomist the question about medicine. If you are a, a scientist or a doctor and you want to find a cure for cancer, by what standard are you finding the cure? What are you using? Are you using the Bible? And they would say, no, that's not what the Bible is written for. We're using science. Okay. Then why is it legitimate to say that with medicine, but illegitimate to say that with politics? And I could even, you think of diets. There are people who suggest that the Old Testament dietary law um, should be the law for Christians. Now, may that maybe make Christians healthier, maybe, but we can't misuse it to say that's what it was for. So, yeah, there's you could even look at the Old Testament civil law and gain some wisdom about it for today, but to say that's what it's for is a misuse of the law. And so politics are of this world is not the purpose of the Bible, that God would make a covenant with this world and then give it its laws. And so uh, I'm just going to quote Calvin from Calvin's Institutes 4.2014. And he really addresses theonomy here. And by the way, Rush Dooney hated this quote from Calvin. It says, I would have preferred to pass over this matter in utter silence if I were not aware that here many dangerously go astray. For there are some who deny that a commonwealth is duly framed, which neglects the political system of Moses and is ruled by the common laws of nations. Let other men consider how perilous and seditious this notion is. It will be enough for me to have proved it false and foolish. And so here... Calvin is saying the idea of using the political system of Moses as our laws is false and foolish. And so it's simply a false dichotomy. It doesn't even solve the problem because let's say you say, all right, we'll be ruled by God's law, not man's law. Well, God's law doesn't answer a whole lot of questions, does it? Right. I mean, how do you know whether we should legalize marijuana? Explain what Old Testament verse you're going to use for that. And then you get two theonomists who never agree and put 12 of them in a room and they'll all find different verses on their answer. How does that answer the question? What about leverite marriage? 
where, you know, if, if your brother dies and there's a widow, um, should you marry the widow? That was the law of the land that was considered moral and right. It's never rescinded in the New Testament. So why aren't Christians practicing that today? So they end up picking and choosing the laws they would like to see implemented. Um, so it just doesn't answer the question. What about heroin, um, selling heroin on the street? What does the Old Testament law say about that? Well, it doesn't say anything. So now how are you going to decide? And so it's simply a false dichotomy. It sounds good to say God's law or man's law, and then who wants to say man's law? But as you, you know, develop that idea for a while, you realize it's a false dichotomy. Um, we simply are not given in the Bible a platform for politics or law, just like we're not given a diet and we're not given a cure for cancer. And all these things are important in their own way but it's simply not the purpose of the Bible. That's, ex that's extremely helpful. Thank you. Um, you know, Chris, you talked about how we can use Meredith Klein to refute theonomy. Um, you know, if, if I want to be opposed, or if I want to um, put together an argument in, a, in opposition to theonomy, do I need to follow Klein or um, why or not would that be necessary? So Daryl Hart and John Meather edit the Nicotine Theological Journal. And when I was a student at Westminster Seminary, California, there were ads that were put in our mailboxes at the seminary that said, you don't have to smoke to subscribe, but it helps. <laughs> and I guess I would say the same thing about Klein and theonomy. Do you have to be a Kleinian in order to oppose theonomy? No, but it helps. His biblical theological analysis of the Bible is so amazingly helpful because Unlike the vast majority of other theologians, at least whom I've read, he doesn't miss the forest for the trees. Uh, he's able to take in the one grand story of the kingdom of God from Genesis to Revelation, but he's able to do that because he has carefully worked through the individual passages that make up that whole story. And I really think um, that's what makes his arguments so much more helpful and so much more effective in arguing against theonomy. But since you don't need to be a Kleinian, I would point out that anyone who reads their Bibles realizes that Jesus and the authors of the New Testament don't describe the new covenant the same way that the old covenant, that's, that is the, the Mosaic covenant, was described. And when the apostles have face-to-face -face meetings with rulers in the civil government, there's no attempt to persuade those rulers to implement the Mosaic law. They just point those rulers to Christ as the only one who can save. Um, Christians have always read the Bible that way. And that's why from the time of the church fathers, we can see the basic outline of that threefold distinction in the law that I mentioned earlier, moral, civil, and ceremonial. Uh, it was around the second or third century that Tertullian was distinguishing what we would call natural law, um, law that can be learned just by observing the world and the way that God has made it from what he called the sacerdotal law or um, alternatively the Levitical law. And he even said some things that sounded like he was recognizing that the civil laws of Israel, which is the whole point of what we've been talking about, that those were a distinct category. 
Now, um, having said that, I would say that the threefold distinction of the law is not perfect. Not everyone agrees on which laws we find in the Mosaic Covenant belong to uh, which category, moral, civil, or ceremonial. But at least that threefold distinction means that the church has always recognized that we don't just take the whole Mosaic law and apply it to every civil government of all times and all places. They, the whole point of that distinction was that um, really what's left for the church is the moral law. And I mean, we can learn things like Todd said, we can learn things from the civil law um, that might be wise, but that doesn't mean that we need to enforce that law uh, against believer and unbeliever the way the civil government enforces laws. Todd, what are some other exegetical arguments to disprove theonomy? Uh, let me give five. One is, and this is from a paper that Lane Tipton wrote on Hebrews 2.2, which says, for since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and obedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? And Tipton made the point, rightly, that the connection between the Old Testament punishment is, is with final judgment. I think Chris mentioned that. And so here we see, um, if every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, the correlation to that is it was pointing to a final just punishment which is the, what happens with the return of Christ. And if we're part of that judgment is the warning. And so it's showing that the Lord was not using the actions of the law in Israel as an example of what every nation should implement. He was using the, the violations and punishments in Israel typologically to point ahead to final judgment. And so that's exactly the connection this passage makes. And then we can use 1 Corinthians 6, 12, and 13. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. And so we see that it's not the purpose of the church to judge those outside, to rule them. It's God's role to do that at the second coming. What we need to make right, what we need to make sure follow God, is the church. So it's not our mandate to tell the world what laws to implement as if that's some sort of obedience to the Lord, as if unbelievers can be obedient to the Lord simply by their laws. Um, God judges those outside. Paul says, you focus on those inside the church. <clears throat> Thirdly, there's a little verse that I'm sure you've heard of, my kingdom is not of this world. And what's interesting about that is when Jesus says this to Pilate, Pilate is rightly convinced by this that Jesus is no threat to his government. And so that's the basis Pilate declares him innocent. Pilate was right. That's the whole point. Jesus is telling him, I, not, I have not come, nor have my followers come, to take over government. It is not the purpose. My kingdom is not like that. My kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It is no threat to your government. It is simply not the Christian's goal 
to end secular government. And so Pilate was not wrong to declare him innocent. That was the whole point of Jesus assuring him of that. And then you have um, Luke 12, where it says, Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Here, if Jesus is supposed to come as a civil judge, a civil ruler, why does he always reject this ministry when it's handed to him? They're even asking him to be a civil ruler. They're even asking him to implement God's law in a civil case. And he says, who made me? Who appointed me this type of ministry, this type of arbitrator? And so Jesus is always rejecting this type of thing. And I'm going to quote Calvin again on this verse. There appear to have been chiefly two reasons why he declined the office of a judge. First, as the Jews imagined that the Messiah would have an earthly kingdom, he wished to guard, to guard against doing anything that might countenance this error. If they had seen him divide inheritances, the report of that proceeding would immediately have been circulated. Many would have been led to expect a carnal redemption, which they too ardently desired, and wicked men would have loudly declared that he was effecting a revolution in the state and overturning the Roman Empire. Nothing could be more appropriate, therefore, than this reply, by which all would be informed that the kingdom of Christ is spiritual. And so we're learning very clearly that we need to follow Christ on this and make sure that church's ministry follows Christ's ministry. And then added to that is Chris made the point of the argument from silence. If the New Testament is the fulfillment of the old, and the New Testament now explains how the old um, is fulfilled in the life of the church, we're never told to transform the nations. We're never told once to address public policy. Paul never once in all his letters addresses Roman policies and what the church should do about them. So the argument from silence is not only silence, it's an argument from sola scriptura. That if the Bible is our only rule of faith in life, what is the rule in the Bible given to the church? And if it's not there, then what is our responsibility? We can't make it up. And so we have to take the argument from silence to show us that is not the role of the church. Now, should Christians in all that they do be trying to glorify God out in the world? Trying to do good, of course. But you don't, you don't have to adopt theonomy to, to do that. And then finally, often with the absence of any direct, I mean, the only other direct, by the way, verse that sometimes is used is the misinterpretation that Greg Bonson used of Matthew 5.17. Greg Bonson taught that this said that when Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to, and he would say, confirm it. And he used the translation of that Greek word that is normally translated, fulfill it. And every other time that Greek word is used in Matthew, it's fulfill. But Bonson claimed, it's really the first time I've seen that in church history, by the way. But Bonson claimed that that word meant confirm the Old Testament law. And that sort of was 
the starting point for theonomy in the New Testament exegetically as a terrible translation. But the only other verse that tends to be used a lot in, is 1 Corinthians 10, 5, um, that we take every thought to the obedience of Christ. And so that's the idea that, you know, we have to consider the worldview of the Bible that answers the question of every area of culture and politics um, and bring it under the authority of Christ in his law, including the Old Testament law. But that's completely out of context of Paul's point. Paul did not stop his discussion that had nothing to do with culture or politics. Oh, um, by the way, in the middle of this, I'm going to mention a verse about how to take over culture and politics and Christianize them. The context of 2 Corinthians 10 is evangelism. How is the church going to win people for Christ when people like the Apostle Paul, who look like such losers and speak like such losers about the cross, which does not gather a crowd, does not seem to persuade many, how are we going to reach people and how are you going to bring them to the obedience of Christ? That's another way of saying, and again, you can read Calvin on this first. Another way of saying, how are you going to bring them to conversion? And so the, the Judaizers, the people um, that Paul was preaching against, were using carnal weapons to attract people to the church and gospel. And Paul's writing, we don't need carnal weapons. We have spiritual weapons. The gospel itself, simply the cross preached. The Holy Spirit is enough. We don't need different carnal forms of persuasion and flowerly language. So that verse has absolutely nothing to do with the theonomists typically use it for. And they need to because of the silence in the Bible. And so that's just a starting point of four or five arguments, but I'll leave it at that. Do you think that um, some of the ideas within theonomy has influenced our circles at all. I, I just, some of the things that you've talked about tonight, I've very specifically seen some of the ideas among people that would not identify as theonom theonomists and don't even hold to um, theonomy. Yeah, especially outside reform circles. You've got, for example, among many dispensationalists, the idea of the Christian America where America was founded as a Christian nation. It is the goal of the church to bring them back to the vision of the founders that they assume was Christian. They may never heard of theonomy. They would never think of it in terms of implementing the Mosaic law in any way, but simply having a society that recognizes Christianity as the chief religion, maybe even enforcing it, but not really with any thought of the Old Testament in the judicial laws. So again, there's a lot of people who have bought on to theonomic ideas without ever hear, hearing of theonomy proper. Yeah. That's just that, uh, theocratic principle. I think that, um, seems to be always the temptation for Christians ever since, um, the civil government became friendly toward the church. You know, if you read Christians who lived before Constantine, they simply would not have had the categories to think about any of this kind of stuff. This whole discussion that we're having would just seem like something out of the twilight zone for them. Um, but once, once the civil government relaxed its policy of persecution toward the church, 
suddenly some you know someone got the bright idea that maybe we could turn around and use the civil government to enforce Christian principles, even if they weren't thinking, um, you know, the Mosaic Law specifically. Um, but ever, I mean, now especially in democracies where um, we might be able to change something with with the way that we vote, that that whole idea of enforcing Christian principles is even stronger among Christians, I think. Uh, just lastly, are there any resources that either one of you could recommend for someone that might want to study this in more detail? Uh, two come to my mind, and Chris may have some more. One would be Meredith Klein's Kingdom Prologue, which it's written at a scholarly level, so there's a warning that comes with it, but it's probably the best refutation of theonomy out there. But also there's a book that Westminster Seminary in California used to be called Westminster West put out years ago answering theonomic objections, sort of responding to what guys like Bonson had put out. Uh, Klein also has a shorter journal article that I would really recommend. Uh, I think it's more approachable than Kingdom Prologue is. It's called uh, Comments on an Old-New Error. Uh, it's available at MeredithKlein.com. And what I really love about that article is that he he really puts his finger on the heart of the issue, and you can see how opposed to the gospel that theonomy is. Um, so I, I really recommend that. Uh, the, uh, the exegesis of Hebrews 2 that Todd mentioned earlier is very helpful by Lane Tipton. Um, and then, um, Lee Irons has some helpful essays at, at his website, upperregister.com. And let me just add, if you don't mind, Colleen, I have to say this because people often hear the things we say and they say, are you suggesting that theonomists aren't Christians? And we're not talking about that. We're talking about a, a bad theology, but Christians can have bad theologies. We all do at some level and so we're not making any personal statements about people's soul in holding to this, just like we wouldn't with dispensationalists or charismatics. Um, we're, we're simply talking about the, the theology. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you saying that. And I will, all the things that you mentioned, especially the ones that I can link online, I will link in the episode notes. And I do recommend that our listeners check out Glory Cloud Podcast. They've recently done... Uh, a series where they've talked about counseling and some men's and women's issues and just really an excellent series I think would be of interest to our audience. I know that um, those episodes have been posted in the group and there's been some discussion about those, but I'll link some of those episodes in the episode notes too. So thank you guys so much for joining us. I think this was so helpful on this topic. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. If you would like to support the work that we're doing here at Theology Gals, uh, there are a few options to do that. Uh, you can support us with just a few dollars a month on Patreon, and that's linked in the episode notes and also on our webpage at theologygals.com. You can give a one-time gift on PayPal, and again, you can find that link on our 
website. And then also we do have some Theology Gals merch, different shirts and hoodies and even some little kids gear. So that is also linked at our website at theologygals.com. Thanks so much for joining us.